Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Thanks for attending today. Um, I'm Kerry Cook. I'm the president of the Blue Mountains Union Council. And the Blue Mountains Union Council is always looking for new members. We have membership forms laying around. And we find that we have our, uh, our aims and objectives and what we, well, our manifesto, I guess, and what we support. And we support unionism, full in, well, full employment, we think, and, uh, <laughs> and social issues, of course. But, you know, you, you join the Union Council. If you can convince us that you've got an issue that we'll support, we'll support you. We're very democratic. All right, so uh, thanks for attending, and uh, thanks to the speakers today, and again, and the Blackburn family for letting us use this room. I'll hand over to Val to do Welcome to Country, and then Deb will chair the meeting. Thank you. Good afternoon. My name is Annie Val Orish. I'm a Derek Elder. On behalf of my people, both past and present, enjoy your meeting and welcome to Derek Nation. Thank you. Good afternoon. Thanks, Auntie Val, for that welcome. Um, maybe we wouldn't be having this discussion if we had a bit more respect for country and culture, I think. Um, thanks, everyone, for coming today. I know some people were torn between coming here and going to Sydney for the March in March. I'm Deborah Smith. I'm the Secretary of the Blue Mountains Unions and Community, which is our new name for the Blue Mountains Unions Council. Unfortunately, one of our advertised speakers, Dr Jenny Mays, couldn't make it today. She sent her apologies, but Dr John Tomlinson has taken her place. And he was her, he was her supervisor for her PhD, so I think we know what he's talking about. Thanks also to Dr Victor Quirk, who's our second speaker today. And Victor's spoken to us before about the policies of full employment. After both speakers are finished, we'll take questions from the audience. Okay, so, quoting US Senator Democrat Elizabeth Warren, There is nobody in this country who got rich on their own. Nobody. You built a factory out there, good for you, but I want to be clear. You moved your goods to market on roads the rest of us paid for. You hired workers the rest of us paid to educate. You were safe in your factory because of police forces and fire forces that the rest of us paid for. You didn't have to worry that marauding bands would come and seize everything at your factory. Now look, you built a factory and it turned into something terrific or a great idea. God bless. Keep a hunk of it. But part of the underlying social contract is that you take a hunk of that and pay forward for the next kid that comes along. Social demographer Mark McCrindle's analysis of ABS data shows that in Australia the wealthiest 20% receive 50% of the income, while the poorest 20% only receive 4%. A recent report estimates that if unpaid work was measured in economic data, the Australian economy would be regarded as a third larger. By itself, the unpaid childcare done by women is estimated to contribute $345 billion to the economy, larger than any other sector in the currently measured economy, including finance. It's not easy to distinguish all of the ways that people contribute to the greater good, but it is easy to disregard them. And there has to be a fairer way. Why do we sing along with the extremely wealthy 
as their allies in government divide us against each other with words like dog bludger, leaner, fraudster and union thugs. My former CPSU comrades at the Department of Human Services, which is Centrelink Medicare and Child Support, took industrial action last week. They've been trying to negotiate an enterprise agreement since the old one expired on the 30th of June 2014. Most of them are on well below average wage and most of them haven't had a pay rise since 2013. In recent years, 5,000 permanent jobs have been cut from DHS and new staff are more likely to be hired as temporaries or casuals. Last year, 36 million phone calls to DHS went unanswered. In the general community, there's low wages growth, erosion of conditions and increasingly insecure work. And it was recently announced that 1.1 million Australians are underemployed. They're working, but they don't have enough hours. They need or want more. Automation continues to reduce the number of workers in many industries, but it's also created new industries and new jobs. The impact on jobs with the developments in artificial intelligence remains to be seen, but we need to ensure that more than a few people are the winners. Our discussion today is about guaranteed or universal basic income, a social security payment which recognises that every citizen should be able to expect a basic standard of living, a roof over their head, food and basic utilities. Most Australian social security payments require some sort of activity on the part of their recipients. Sometimes it's called mutual obligation, depending on what, which, which payment you're talking about. Only some escape the requirement to be doing something apart from being poor. Most people regard these as reasonable expectations and many even envy those who they judge to be getting a free ride. Even people on welfare can think this way about others in sim situations similar to their own. So is a universal or guaranteed basic income a fair way to distribute collectively created wealth? How would it affect the power of workers to insist on decent working conditions? How could it work? How could we pay for it? Shouldn't organisations like Centrelink employ more people when they have millions of phone calls going un unanswered? And would removing the hoop jumping of mutual obligations give people the opportunity to spend their time more productively? And who gets to decide what productive is anyway? Dr Quirk and his associate Professor Bill Mitchell have spoken to us before about full employment and as a result BMUC decided to endorse and promote policies which lead to full employment. Uh, we don't have a policy about basic income. We've invited our speakers so that we can learn more about it, the pros and the cons. So our first speaker, Dr John Tomlinson, has written widely on basic income. He has a long history of campaigning for it. He was a senior lecturer at Queensland University of Technology before his retirement. He was instrumental in setting up the bigger website, that's BIGA, Basic Income Guarantee Australia, where you can find articles and records about basic income. So please welcome John, Dr John Tomlinson. Thank you, uh, I too would like to acknowledge that we're on Dagrad land and uh, the, uh, I uh, want to say that Jenny was uh, sad she's not here but I'll, you'll 
have to make do with me. Um, now, a universal basic income is just that. It provides a modest or austere guaranteed regular income. Um, the, as Deb says, the uh, social security system that we have in this country is so flawed. So many people who have no money, no shelter, no work, no opportunities, are knocked off one after another. The people who this Turnbull government is attacking most are Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory who do remote work for the Dole or bush work for the Dole. There have been 200,000 breaches um, that can last up to eight weeks. Aboriginal people in remote regions are required to work five hours a day, five days a week, just to get the dole. There are only 35,000 people involved in this scheme, and there have been 200,000 breaches for up to eight weeks. The, uh, now, the actual amount that you'd need to pay a basic income in Australia to make it a secure living would be slightly over the current age pension. Because if you pay less than that, people who are on the current age pension, full pension, would lose. If you, if you uh, introduced a basic income. Now, in order to pay for that, there'll have to be an increase in taxes. But just remember that if people are given a basic income of 14,000 or thereabouts income every year, that most people up to the average wage will be paying roughly the same amount of net tax after you uh, after they pay their tax and they get a basic income that the net tax payable is about what they're paying in income tax today. The, um, now, under the current system People aren't advantaged if they get more money at several stages of the income stream. Uh, but under a basic income, there would always be an advantage to those who earn extra income or receive extra income. Um, the, uh, everyone is treated equally under a basic income. That doesn't mean that that is equitable treatment for everybody, but what a basic income does is tell the government the minimum amount that people have to live on. 
and it's from that it's much easier to build sensible other social policies whether they're in the disability area, the educational area, the housing area or whatever. Um, now the uh, other thing about a basic income is it would not be able to be garnished by the government, by employers, by other businesses, by anybody. Um, it would be untouchable. So people who are now subjected to this robo-generated settling debt will not have their incomes eroded by a garnishing of their basic level of income. Um, now, a basic income frees people's initiative. It allows them to be inventive, it allows them to follow their artistic endeavours, it allows them to set up a small business or whatever it is that they want to do. And I'd just like to look at uh, job guarantees and I'm actually relying largely on some work I did in, 19, uh, in, in 2005 at uh, a coffee conference uh, and that paper can be found uh, at uh, John Tomlinson Collected Works. It's a cards there on your way out you might like to grab. There are a lot of other uh, basic income articles there. But that, that paper was actually called uh, Faint Praise for a Shimmerer. Um, anyway, yeah, I've argued fairly consistently since 1973 that the social security system should be changed to a general income guarantee so that people don't get kicked off. That whatever contributions people make will be what they want to do, not what the state says they should do. Now, with a job guarantee, um, the uh, well, there's absolutely no work requirement with a, a basic income. But under a job guarantee, the minimum demand is that people do the work that they're required to do by the people who are running the job guarantee scheme. So that will mean that some bureaucrat has to assess whether this person has met their obligations. Well, comrades, I believe we do have obligations. We have obligations to ourselves, our families, but not to the government. We have obligations to those others in the community who are part of our community. And how each and every one of us chooses to meet those obligations should be a free choice, freely entered into, without compulsion and without penalty by somebody else. Um, the, I don't think there is any need to force people to do work for the dole, because I think everyone 
I've ever met wanted to make a contribution to the society. They, uh, and, and my argument here goes to intent. If people intend to be a good citizen, who am I to say that their desired contribution is not good enough, not up to scratch? Um, the, uh, but a job guarantee scheme has one advantage over a basic income that I can see, and that is that there are some things done in the community sector that are not adequately paid for, and so they're not done well or often enough. Similarly, in education. So there are some things in health and education and disability services that people engaged in a job guarantee might be encouraged to do, and that would make a socially useful contribution to other people and to the society generally. The, uh, but the moment you enter into a compulsion, and I worked for Social Security for about a total of seven years uh, back in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, and I saw people, well, before 73, it was possible to say to someone, we have decided not to pay you because you are not deemed worthy to receive a pension. This, this would be a letter that we sent out, signed by some departmental operative. You are not deemed worthy. Bill Hayden pulled that stunt right off the books. Uh, and uh, the uh, we have seen the Howard government knock people off uh, disability pensions, force them on a new start, uh, because the Howard government and the, the Rudd government and the Gillard government and this peasant bunch of pricks uh, <laughs> have done this with alacrity. Uh, I uh, constantly abuse the unchristian porters of the world and the Alan Sludges that run Centrelink. They impose on people. They get about $330,000 a year and they dare send letters to some of the poorest, least bureaucratically sophisticated people in my country telling them they've got a debt when they know that that debt doesn't exist. They've combined a series of databases that don't match up. And they're happy because they've got rid of 5,000 workers, as you said. They don't even bother checking 
And then they, they pay debt collectors, commercial debt collectors, to come around and threaten single mothers, aged pensioners, unemployed people. You know, it, it, it is a disgusting, immoral government that's running this country today. And, and frankly, friends, I wouldn't trust them to run a job guarantee scheme that would provide a proper service to ordinary people anywhere who need a job. Thank you. Our next speaker is Dr Victor Quirk. His academic work is focused on the political basis of unemployment, the history of the management of the unemployed and the political opposition to full employment. He's a labour market political sociologist with 20 years experience as a specialist labour market practitioner. He's worked as a CS employment counsellor, a university careers counsellor, training centre manager and job network agency manager. He currently lectures in policy development at the University of Newcastle and is a research associate of the Centre of Full Employment and Equity, or COFI, headed by his former PhD supervisor, Professor Bill Mitchell. COFI advocates for the re-establishment of full employment using a public sector job creation strategy known as the Job Guarantee. In response to our invitation to speak against, um, in inverted commas, universal basic income, Dr Quirk told us that he doesn't see the job guarantee and universal basic income as mutually exclusive concepts, but he thinks the job guarantee has a greater potential to shift the balance of power in society. Uh, BMUC has invited Dr Quirk because we think it's important to hear another perspective about basic income, so please welcome Dr Victor Quirk. Thanks very much, Deb, and thanks for the uh, organising committee to uh, have me back again. Uh, it's a great treat to be back in Katoomba, and uh, I've been very uh, nicely treated with some uh, free accommodation here that's um, absolutely splendid uh, from uh, Warren and uh, Donna, so very grateful for that. Um, so, yeah, so there are two policy instruments that are sort of out there that the labour movement is sort of considering, it should be considering. And one is the universal basic income that, that John's uh, outlined, and the other one is uh, the restoration of full employment using a particular policy instrument that um, Professor Mitchell and a bunch of economists around the world have been tinkering with since the mid-90s that they call the job guarantee. And it's not just a job creation system, they actually consider it an economic stabilisation system. So it's not just about establishing full employment, because that's a relatively simple concept. Keynes, Keynesian economics cracked the case wide open in the 30s. Our, our government, uh, the Curtin government, uh, and uh, implement, did, drew up the plans to implement it in the post-war era. And this country enjoyed uh, an aggregate demand management system for 30 years after the Second World War, where it became bipartisan policy to use public sector expenditure to supplement the private sector's demand for labour to maintain the unemployment rate at or below 2%, and they did that right up until 1974. And people 
of younger generations, when I talk about this, look at me in disbelief and say that can't even be vaguely possible, but just looking around this room, I know that there are people here who personally remember that time. And it was a great contrast to what, what they experienced and what their families experienced during the 30s, where in the early 30s we had a terrible depression and governments were being begged. The, there was a Labor government at the time, the Treasurer was uh, a, a very interesting character called Ted Theodore, who um, was well ahead of the pack in terms of understanding how you could reflate an economy in a depression. And he was proposing, he was putting up all this legislation and all of it was being blocked in the Senate by the Conservatives and blocked by the um, business interests that were then controlling what passed as our central bank, which was the Commonwealth Bank in those days. And the Commonwealth Bank Board and the Senate blocked all these attempts to set up uh, a big uh, public works program uh, and to provide farmers with a, a um, stabilisation schemes that would have got Australia back the economy growing again, but the, the, the opponents of that criticised those ideas as saying that they'd be wildly inflationary, we'd get a hyperinflation like the Weimar Republic, blah, blah, blah. So, of course, when the Second World War comes along and the interests of those rich people who blocked all those schemes were suddenly just as threatened as everybody else because the Japanese were poised to invade us and they thought we'd better organise ourselves to put up a decent opposition... Uh, all of a sudden, they commissioned 40,000 workers to build um, airfields and ports and all sorts of infrastructure around the country that within the space of a year, during 1942, early 1943, within the space of a year, the country had achieved 1% unemployment. So then the public then were, were a bit quizzical. How come, just eight years ago, you were saying that this was an impossible thing to happen. You didn't have the money, or if you did it, it would cause a hyperinflation. You've done it, and it hasn't caused a hyperinflation. And so the government, the, the Labor government, took advantage of this, this situation. We're talking about Curtin and Chifley here. Both of them were staunch advocates of the right to work to begin with. They used this opportunity of having the controls over the wartime economy to implement full employment in the post-war period. And then when the 1949 election came along, Menzies, who had opposed all this during the war, was forced to swear blind that he would support these policies and for the next 23 years that the Liberals were in power, unemployment stayed under 2%. There were a few blips up to 3% that my professor Bill Mitchell's castigated me for not mentioning before, but... Even so, it was incredibly, uh, an incredible economic performance. Okay, so in the mid-70s, um, and we weren't the only country that was doing this. This was going on in countries all around the world. Um, in um, uh, the um, uh, mid-70s, business interests organised themselves to engineer the abandonment of full employment. So you had this remarkable... Uh, speech by the chairman of BHP in April 1971, Sir Colin Syme, came out in full-page spreads in the, the Metropolitan newspapers and in the Financial Review, saying that this country needs more unemployment. We don't have enough unemployment in this country. And to read it today it just seems bizarre. But the issue for these, um, these people was that their profits were being squeezed, and that's because workers had too much bargaining power in an economy where they didn't fear the sack. 
So this is a very important issue to understand. In uh, 1349, England achieved full employment. They did it the hard way. Uh, the bubonic plague had swept down through Asia and wiped out a third of the adult population. And all of a sudden, all these lords of the manor were stuck with not enough workers to do their work for them, to keep them in the manner to which they'd become accustomed. And so they started poaching each other's workers. And of course, the workers worked out that they could, uh, Lord so-and-so's offering could go to their own master and say that Lord so-and-so up the road's offering me £5 a year pay increase. What are you going to offer me to stay? And so the, the bargaining power of workers was suddenly enhanced to the extent that they got improvements in their conditions, higher rates of remuneration, and you know all the punishments that they would normally be subjected to all had to be toned down because these lords couldn't afford to lose their workers. Now, over time, the, the balance in the labour market was restored and we had unemployment again, but it was an interesting episode and we know about it because it was written about in a, a law was passed when the plague had cleared London and they could pass legislation again in 1351. Um, the, uh, they passed this act called the Statute of Labourers and you can still look it up and read it today. And in the preamble it explains to why this law was necessary and what, is, what it was was a maximum rates award. That is, they listed all these occupations and said that no one was allowed to pay more in wages for these different occupations than they were paid four years before the plague struck. And uh, there were heavy penalties to any employer that paid more money. So it was about trying to force solidarity amongst the employer class. So we know that this is what happens. And we know we, we saw the same thing happen in Australia in the post-war era, where the, the position of working people was vastly strengthened by the fact that they had full employment. Partly because the full employment was being created by things like large-scale public housing programs. So in the building of the housing, there was employment generated from that. But also, they were increasing the stock of housing. And public housing became quite a normal thing for young families to make use of. You'd, you'd rent in, in cheap public housing for a few years, get your deposit together, and then buy your house in the private market. And it was through those processes, through both having security of employment and relative abundance of housing stock, that Australians had a very high level of home ownership and all the security that came from that. So today, we're considering something like the universal basic income. And it's, it's a contentious point in, in some circles because it's both advocated by staunch champions of the left, our John here, <laughs> who I've known for many years, uh, but it's also advocated by the extreme right. Uh, Milton Friedman was an advocate of it. And uh, other extreme right people uh, today, um, like the American Enterprise Institute, advocate for a 13,000... This is last year, they're advocating for a $13,000 a year uh, guaranteed income, uh, requiring though that 3,000 of that would have to be compulsorily paid for private health insurance. Um, but at the same time, there is absolutely no doubt, if we took the unemployment benefit, which is currently $267 a week, absolute starvation poverty wage, if we, if we took that and we removed the work test from it, and we removed the activity test from it, 
which is still the compulsion that people have to apply for jobs and jump through hoops and attend meetings, and if they don't do that, they get rendered destitute uh, by having their payments suspended. If we got rid of all of that, um, and also if we raised the level of that benefit to something, say, like the aged pension, which is currently around $437 a week for a single person. <coughs> if we establish that, it would do immense good for thousands of people in this country. Now, I worked in a country CES office where I had people who had every week had to go around and apply for jobs in 10 employers. So every few months, they started the cycle and went around to exactly the same people again. And everyone in this town knew each other. They, 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 they all knew each other. They knew who the person was. They knew he needed a job, but he still had to go there and get them to sign bits of paper and all this. It was a humiliating and degrading experience that something like a UBI set at a reasonable sort of level would alleviate all that misery. The other thing it would do, it would remove the justification for privatising the public <coughs> employment service. Most people don't understand that the reason why they had to get rid of the CES and institute a privatised system was because the CES staff weren't showing sufficient gusto in breaching people during the recession we had to have. The Australian National Audit Office did a study, of, of uh, did a report as to why the departments of social security and employment weren't achieving their <coughs> budget savings targets during the, in 1990. And the departments came back and said that we had been expecting to claw back a lot more money from the recipients of these benefits through breaching. But the staff aren't into it. They actually think that breaching harms their clients and they're not willing to do it. And I was working in the CS at this time and that was exactly what the attitude was. It wasn't 100%, but there was just a good number of CS staff who were totally opposed to cutting people off their dole during... The, the, the worst depression since the, the worst recession since the 1930s depression, and so the um, Keating government, it was uh, Paul Keating and Peter Baldwin, commissioned a McKinsey consultant, a guy called Dr. Paul Toomey, who John Howard later went on to uh, have as the first uh, director of the Office of uh, the Information Economy, which sort of runs the domains and things for the internet. This guy, Dr. Paul Toomey, did this study that was called From Client to Customer, the Marketisation of the Public Employment Service. And it was, it was in 1993, uh, during the time of the Keating government, that the blueprint for the job network and Centrelink was actually designed. But in the report, uh, Toomey said, you can't just shut down the CS one day and have these private mobs running the employment service. It has to be phased in. They have to have enough time to build up their offices and their systems and the department is going to have to learn how to contract manage a process like this. So we have to have this sort of half and half system for a period while these mobs are getting set up and the old CES chugs along doing the bread and butter work of you know, taking job vacancies and sending people off to work. And so um, uh, the Keating government implemented the white paper working nation, which was exactly that. So when John Howard came into power in 1996, he just dusted off Labor's blueprint and implemented the job network using Labor's existing legislation. They tried to get new legislation through the Senate and got blocked. Labor blocked it. 
So they said, all right, we'll implement the system using Labor's old legislation. It worked perfectly fine. So what we have here is a situation that to get the... And the reason they did that was they wanted to make the employment service staff their, their lives more precarious. So if they didn't, weren't prepared to cut someone off the dole, their jobs were at stake. And so the market works by giving, cut, cutting back on contracts to agencies that don't breach enough people and expanding the business empires of those that did. And through successive contracts, they've refined the job network into this very punitive and spiteful, vindictive system on the unemployed. Uh, and it's all driven by the fact that the staff themselves are in a precarious situation and their own economic insecurity um, creates the problem. Now, coming to the universal basic income and the fact that there are two, a left-wing version and a right-wing version, Yanis uh, uh, Varoufakis, Varoufakis has... has That's where... Has, has characterised the issue as a bit of a debate about um, our future, you know, because part, uh, part of the story that's getting the run in the press at the moment is that robots are taking over and all the jobs are being disappeared. And so, and so um, you know, we don't need to be working, we'll just all live on this universal basic income and have this sort of somehow blissful existence. Now, Varoufakis uh, points out that this could go two different ways. And he, he, uses the, uh, he uses two science fiction models. He says this could go the Star Trek way, where this technology is all used for the human good and all these uh, average people have these great lives where they're highly technically skilled and trained and they're managing and controlling this technology and having this exciting experience of life. Or it could go the Matrix way, where the human beings become entirely enslaved to this new, uh, uh, far-out technology. And really, if you think about it, the, the, the problems that we might face in the future over the next 20 or 30 years, as the impacts of robots and automation of that do unfold, it's the way all this stuff unfolds and the way something like a universal basic income is, is applied is going to determine whether this is going to be an awful situation or a good situation. So the, I don't have a view of the universal basic income that it's necessarily all good or necessarily all bad. It could actually be very good depending on how it's done. So what is going to determine whether this works for your average working person or works for the interests of the powerful elite who currently have control over all this technology? And I say that the most critical thing to do is to empower working people in their society once again so that they do have an influence and control over this. And the way we do that is we, we rekindle the notion of full employment and so that working people in, in various departments and in organisations that are going to be making decisions about whether we're going to do it this way that's going to harm people or whether we're going to stand up, stand on our, 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 our dignity and refuse to carry out the order to do it the way that the powers that be might want us to do it. Those people who are going to be in those situations are going to have to have the confidence that they're not going to be brutally economically penalised if they make that decision. We have to take away from employers the power they currently wield by being the controllers 
of who has a dignified, decent standard of living and who does not. Because that is where their power has always been derived. And so what we do is we instigate a, a system where people have the right to work. Not a compulsion to work. They could have the universal basic income at the same time. And if people want to earn, say, the current, the current age pension is $437 a week. The current federal minimum wage is $672 a week. Plus you get annual leave, sick leave, superannuation and workers' compensation. But what it would mean is that the fall from grace that somebody who stuck up and said, no, we're not going to do that, like the CES staff did back in, the in 1990, who refused to um, carry out the instructions to breach people. If people have, have a sense that their fall from grace will not be that far, that they'll still be able to meet the mortgage repayments or pay the rent, they might have a more... Uh, a, a lesser standard of living than the job that they might have been in. But if the fall isn't too far, I believe that people are going to be more confident about sticking up for decency and sticking up for their fellow human being. Because that's been the basic problem over the last 40 years. It's the working class has been actually divided and used as instruments to punish other members of the working class. And, you know, it's been done strategically... It's been done very cleverly. Um, you look at something like the universities, for instance. Our academics today are quite a quiet, coward group of people because their jobs have all been made precarious. Yes. <laughs> Two minutes. So, so I just think that I, 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 I don't know how the universal basic income would actually unfold. Depending on how it's done, it could have some issues with inflation, but they might be dealt with as well, depending on how it's sort of institutionalised. There'd be limits to how high the level of the UBI could be, because if it became too attractive to people in the workforce that they left their jobs and just lived on the UBI, it would mean that employers would have to offer more higher wages to try and draw them back into the workforce, and they'll pass those higher wages on as higher prices. So then the cost of living, the real purchasing power of the UBI would fall. So then there'd be arguments about whether it should be indexed or not. And there's a, a, a theorist called Zygmunt Bauman, who's uh, passed away last year, I think. But he had a concern about the UBI, that after five years, 10 years, 15 years, if you had a large cohort of the population who were just living on this universal income and not seen as engaged in contributing in a material sense to the rest of the society, it would be very easy for a demagogue to come along and demonise them as parasites, just as Hitler demonised certain groups as parasites back in the 30s. And Zygmunt Bauman had grave fears for where this could lead. So I think if we're going to go down this path, I don't see a job guarantee as something that stands in the way of a UBI. I think it's something that could make it safer for the future. And I, I would commend it to you if you don't know the details of it. Thanks very much. Thank you, Dr Quirk. So I think both speakers have answered a lot of questions, but they've probably generated a lot as well. And you'll have a chance to ask them questions shortly. The next part of our program is the Q&A session. I'm just going to briefly hand over to Trish. Thank you, John and Victor. Um, look forward to uh, people's questions in a short while. Um, I've just been asked to, to step up 
as a member or vice president of the Blue Mountains Unions Council to give Susie Van Opdorp's apologies today and um, just a bit of an update uh, for those of you in our community um, that knew Morris Brady um, who was integrally involved in Unions Council and he died on the 2nd of January this year um, would know that the family set up the Morris Brady Memorial Fund and that fund, with the help of the Unions Council, has raised just over $18,000 to date. Um, it's absolutely fantastic. The, the, the fund um, will go to the Blue Mountains Women's Health and Resource Centre to enable families, women and children escaping domestic violence, find a safe place and have the support that they need wrapped around them at difficult times. So. Um, the fund is still open, and if you went onto Facebook and, and just searched um, Morris Brady Memorial Fund, you can uh, make a donation yourselves. Uh, but that's just one other of the fantastic um, things that this Unions Council, Community Unions Council, does to support those in our community. So, in doing so, I think we'll hand over for questions. Yes. Time for questions? Okay. Just double check this is still running. Okay. So before we do go to questions, I'll also just like to thank the Blackburn family for providing this room free of charge. <laughs> it does mean though that we have to move out promptly at 4.30 so that the staff can get ready for the evening meal. Um, but we invite you to continue the discussion in the beer garden and the bar. And also thank the Mountains Community <coughs> Resource Network for auspicing this event. Also thanks to Warren Ross and Donna Ross for providing accommodation, and also Susan and Peter Lammerman who offered accommodation to our uh, speaker Jenny Mays who wasn't here today. Okay, so we've, we have a limited time, so to give as many people an opportunity to ask a question as possible, if we could keep our questions short, also, make sure they are questions and not statements and comments. Normally, we have a microphone that goes around to the, the room, but it's not working today. So, could people either shout or come up to the, come up here and uh, ask their question with the microphone? So, any questions at all, Warren? Yeah, just a, a question to both speakers. But look, we were talking. Mentioned that this was going to be there would be an administrative component. It looks to me like there would be an administrative component for, for both both systems. One of the things with the job guarantee I've seen spoken about is there would be also be the potential for a training component, which would link into into in any jobs. The other the other thing is that if we're one of the things to be worried about with the universal basic income is that 400. We're going to talk that that 400 level. You're also quite likely, if you're raising a family or anything like that, you will want a job as well. And so you're going to, you know, I mean, if the two are going to work together, there's still got to be a job guarantee. If there's no job guarantee, you're just poor. Well, I think that's true. And um, the, the models for the job guarantee, um, it could be done in all sorts of different ways. It has a sort of an economic structure that you'd have to abide by to make the thing work economically. But in terms of how you'd, you'd implement it in, say, a place like Australia, I did a lot of work on this about uh, eight years ago, and the, the papers are available at the Coffee website. But the basic concept is that uh, you could, if you became unemployed, you'd go down to a public employment service. Uh, you'd find they'd offer you a range of different types of employment that you could choose from, 
and you'd go off and get trained in that and you'd start work and you'd just turn up and go to work exactly the same as any other job and you'd be paid the basic wage. It'd be just a normal job. And then if, for instance, uh, uh, and the, the, the system would provide you also with vacancies from the private sector and the mainstream public sector to consider, and if you wanted to, you could just walk straight out of the job and go work for someone else. So it's a system that's actually designed to be like an employer that allows other employers to poach its workers. And you'd have the, t- the TAFE, or a technical training um, uh, institution, integrated into it, so that the jobs themselves would be designed to inculcate skills that are in demand in the broader community, so that a person who was unemployed that needed to retrain, this system would do the retraining. It's designed to alleviate skill shortages, and because it's set at the federal minimum ward and you can't get a pay increase in the job guarantee, other employers' job offers are going to look attractive relatively, because even if they're only offering a basic wage job, only they can offer subsequent promotion. And so for that reason, it means that if... if um, uh, it's not, it provides an anchor in the labour market, so it's not going to be an inf- inflator of the wage structure because it's fixed at that minimum wage. Um, so it's, it's described as a method of achieving full employment without generating inflation in the labour market. And these economists all around the world swear blind that this will work. So how it's actually implemented would be different in different countries, but in a country like Australia, uh, if you want to see a sort of a, a detailed proposal, including all the institutional arrangements involved, you can just go to the coffee website and look up a paper called The Job Guarantee in Practice. There's always going to be... Someone has to administer any government scheme. Um, but under a job guarantee, there is nothing to enforce except work. Under a basic income, there is nothing at all to enforce. So you need less policemen. Sorry. That's my first time here. Um, yeah, I, you, you spoke a lot, uh, but not in, in, in detail about uh, positions or the sorts of jobs that people have. I myself, for instance, um, have lived here for 20 years on and off and the only industry is the hospitality industry. And I have never, I've worked for so, I've worked for many people and not a single boss actually paid me the right money. They never taxed me. And um, at the in particular, I can talk about that now because she doesn't own it anymore. She employed people that didn't, well, if you, if you dared, say, oh, where's my tips today, uh, you would get less shifts. And as I confronted her more about this, because I worked there for six months and I didn't receive a single tip, and it's a big tourist attraction. Um, so basically, what happened was I, I got less and less shifts until I got no shifts at all. So I went in there one day, and I broke the law, and I took all the tips. She took me to court, and she won. I was naive, I didn't stand up for myself. 
I should have, I think I was just very tired at the time. Join the union. Well, the, well, the thing is, that's exactly right. And I, I, that's what I want to know, is that were I to join, I, I'm not working at the moment, and just think, Christ, because I, I just owe the hospitality, I can't do it anymore. But uh, not once while I was working, and I've worked in hospitality in, in, good, in higher places and low places and whatever, but I've never been asked by anyone I didn't even know about um, joining, joining them. So, you know. <laughs> anyway, Some I don't know if that was, I, I think if Tony Jones were here, he, he, he would say, I'll take that as a statement. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, joining a union, there is a, um, a, a website where you can join a union and they work out what union is the right one for you. Mm -hmm. On top of that, the Unions Council is currently working with United Voice to try and get more people in hospitality in the Blue Mountains in the union. So that's a project that we, we've started. Um, we, we, we're yet to set up a meeting with them, but we have approached them and um, yeah, because we're also concerned about the way hospitality yeah. workers are treated and the wages and penalty low. rates and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Could I say something? That yellow book has got your phone number. You can ring up the unions, New South Wales, and I'll tell you what to do. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. The little yellow booklet that was on your seat. Oh, okay. Thank you very much. Sorry about that. Um, the gentleman in the striped shirt. Has anybody done some economic study of the budget that the, the budget that would be required in both schemes? Ah uh, yes. Well, do you want to go first? Okay. The um, the uh, modelling for the job guarantee has been extensive, and it comes the the advocates of the job guarantee uh, subscribe, generally speaking, to a. Uh, non-mainstream model of how monetary systems operate called modern monetary theory, which you may or may not have heard of. But what these professors have done is they've gone back and looked at how monetary systems like the Australian, um, Japanese, American, uh, English, all the countries, for instance, that aren't in the euro, countries that are the sovereign issuers of their own currency, that's a currency that's not locked to gold or some other commodity um, that has got a floating exchange rate. Um, uh, monetary systems that have those characteristics, it means that the government is not fiscally constrained. It means it, it doesn't first tax to get money in order to spend it because it's actually the issue of the currency. Our Commonwealth government operates in a completely opposite way to, uh, to the way households states, local governments, everybody else in the economy operates because they're the sovereign monopoly issuer of the currency. And so it, they have to first spend the money before they can tax it. It has to work the other way for them. And it's for that reason and for those, that, and it's for those reasons that we could fund the Second World War and we could have full employment after the Second World War, uh, that the governments who are the issuers of their own currency can do that. The reason why countries like Greece are in so much trouble is because they're not the issuers of their own currency. They're stuck in the euro, which has more or less the characteristics of being on a gold standard. And the experience of the gold, when Australia was on the gold standard from 1925 to the early 30s, that's why we had the depression. So it's because governments don't have the spending power that they have as they do in a modern monetary system. 
So for, for that reason, the actual financing of the system isn't that significant. Neither is it significant for a universal basic income for the same reason. So the reason why the government taxes money, because it doesn't need the, to tax in order to be able to spend it, the reason it taxes is because that's what actually sets the value of the currency. The reason why an Australian dollar is worth something is because the federal government will only accept Australian dollars as a way of discharging your liabilities in taxation and other charges. So unless you have Australian dollars, you're going to go to jail because you've got a debt to the government, your, your taxes and all the rest of it, that has to be paid in Australian dollars. And by making that the object that you need to acquire in order to discharge your taxation liabilities, that's why it's a valuable thing for other people to have and that's why those monetary systems, that's why the currency has value. Um, so, but that's part of the mythology of how our economy runs. It's been peddled since for the last 40 years. The neoclassical model always features this concept of the federal government is like a household budget. And, you know, you can't have a, you've got to have surpluses because that's sort of like saving. And what household would need to be saving money for a rainy day if it was allowed to issue the national currency? Why would you be saving for a rainy day? It makes no sense. But that's why that's all part of the mythology of the, how the economic system works. But uh, both systems are perfectly economic. Victor's perfectly right that uh, whatever model of design you use to set up a, a basic income uh, is going to depend on outcomes. You know, the outcomes will depend on the model you use. Um, and I was looking over a draft paper I'll be giving in Lisbon at the uh, Basic Income Earth Network conference in uh, September in Portugal. And uh, I made the point that it, whilst it might have been a good idea once to go along with the Hayeks of the world and Milton Friedman and all the others, but that those times have passed and we should regard basic income proponents as only those who would provide as a right of citizenship the uh, same income for everybody, whether they work, are willing to work, have assets or any other reason. Um, and, you know, if, if you want to look for models, uh, Jenny Mays, Greg Marsden and myself have got a Palgrave Macmillan book out called Basic Income uh, in Australia and New Zealand. Ten chapters, ten different models by ten different authors. Could I ask a question? Uh, say, for instance, you get full employment, would they tax it? And the tax, how long would it take to come back to the government, the taxes? Is that the way you talk about it? Yeah, that's sort of how it would yeah, work. Yeah. It would just, look, it would, it's just like a normal job. So a worker would go to do their job, they'd have tax pulled out of their money. So it goes around, how long would it take to go around? Could you I, I don't know. It would it, depend on all... 45% the workers paying. It, it, would, it all depended, just a normal taxation, just the same as it well, happens with jobs at the moment. Anyway, yeah. No, valid question. Valid question. And, and in uh, places like Kenya... They're using mobile telephones to transfer money. So it doesn't take a split second to transfer money either to the government or from the government. Okay, the lady here. 
Um, I'm interested in when you're talking about computers taking over and, uh, and the robot world and that sort of thing. It's my understanding that computers, their software, etc., are tools. They're not. Exactly. exactly. And they are only tools. And as tools, they're not capable of making decisions. We're talking very theoretically here, and there's all sorts of advances, advances in artificial intelligence and things like that. But, yeah, the, but no, I didn't say artificial intelligence. Well, that's there's computers. No intelligence okay, but look, your point's perfectly valid, and it, it really look the real the real point here to remember is. Um, the, the, we've, had, we've got masses of unemployment at the moment, right? It's not because of computers and all the rest of it. We have unemployment because it's there purposefully to disempower people. There's, there's no shortage of work that needs to be done in this country. There's masses of unmet need. We've got an environment that's going to, to hell in a handbasket. We've got neglected elderly people. Our children are being poorly uh, undereducated and not. And the universities are being like uh, they're, they're understaffed and all of that sort of stuff that's going on. There's so much work that we need to be doing if we wanted to have a good, decent society. So it's not about the displacement of, of work, the need to work by computers. That's got nothing to do with it. But, but it's just an issue that's, that's usually trotted out when people talk about the necessity of a universal basic income. So I, 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 I'm prepared to say, well, yes, if you're, if you're worried about 30 years from now, 40 years from now, that we're going to be into some sort of sci-fi sort of world, the choice of world they have will be determined by how much power average people have when all those decisions about, uh, are made along the way. And that's why I think we should be getting to a state of full employment now, so we're in a better bargaining position going into the future. Could I finish my question? Oh, sure. Um, because they're tools, if they are set up to create the Centrelink debt fiasco, how much would have been saved if they had used people to make that decision before the letter went out? As a result of letters going out to the wrong people, apart from the enormous grief it's caused, it has to have cost quite a bit of money in getting those faults sorted out from various places. So if they had a proper intelligence instead of somebody who said, when the computer says no... <laughs> um. You, you credit them with too much morality. Um, th they couldn't care how much money they waste. They don't. That, that's not what government is about. And this government is, is particularly not about uh, worrying about money they waste. They're concerned, as Victor said, how much power each and every one of you has. And, you know, if, if you can tell them, up you and yours, then they're worried. Yeah. Um, I'd just like to comment on that as well. I used to work for Centrelink, I'm retired now, and I actually did that job of data matching the tax office. Yes. The difference when I did it was I would look at that and I, I would 
firstly send a letter, if I sent a letter, so often I would weed out stuff and say, oh, well, you know, Bell Park Proprietary Limited and the Carrington are the same place, that's not two employers, or this person was only on payment for a month, obviously that's what they earn for the rest of the year. The other difference is when I sent a letter out, and I'm talking late 1990s, it had my name and my phone number on it. So you were dealing with one person. Yeah, yes. Now, with the robo-debt, as soon as I read about it, I knew exactly that they were counting income twice, that they were... I knew what they were doing wrong. And the sampling staff tried to tell them it's not going to work, you're doing it wrong. But they were able... When people did it, 20,000 letters a year went out. When, when it was automated, 20,000 letters a week, week were going yeah, out. That's right. Can I, can I just and that's the, add yeah. something to that? That people need to be paying more attention because as this issue blew up and got daily run in The Guardian, the government kept saying the system was working. Yes. <laughs> the government were telling the truth. That's right. It was doing exactly what it was designed to do. It's about making people fearful of going and asking for welfare support because down the road you know you're going to get punished for it. Yeah. <laughs> and the government were happy with that result. It's working perfectly. And can I, uh, uh, there was a woman who wrote an article for uh, Fairfax and this Alan Trudge who's Minister for Centrelink released her details so that some uh, hack journo could kick her all over the place. Um, okay. There's one here. There's someone up the back. Oh, Dave. Yep. Yeah, so it's most of me because um, I just wanted to ask is there, uh, for this economic model, is there a precedent? Is there a country in the world that's actually done this and where it's, whether it's failed or whether it's succeeded? In relation to a partial basic income, Alaska has had one uh, since 1986, I think, based on their oil reserves. Um, and uh, Alaska is the most egalitarian of the American states. Uh, it's only a partial basic income, and uh, the highest amount paid from memory is something like 6000 $400 uh, for a family of four. Uh, it's uh, been decreased recently because of the drop in oil prices. But um, the, uh, there have been models run in India, in Namibia, uh, and uh, there's a, currently models being run in Kenya, mainly funded through uh, Silicon Valley. Uh, entrepreneurs. Did they fail or succeed? Or is it failing or successful? Did it fail or succeed? Uh, the Kenyan one is, is, is uh, a guarantee. It started this year. Um, it's uh, going a guarantee for 12 years, fully funded uh, for a uh, section of the Kenyan society, not the entire Kenyan society. Finland has a, a model going at uh, with two different economic uh, models operating, split between the two groups uh, for a total of 2,000 people, 
Um, there are models planned in um, Canada. There are models planned for Holland, and Scotland's talking about it. Um, just on the job guarantee. Yep, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So there's been uh, major adoption of a job guarantee style model in uh, India, uh, where it's reserved for um, the main breadwinners in a family. Um, and it's had a massive impact on poverty uh, in a lot of regional areas in India. And there's also, um, and I always get my South American countries a bit confused, but one of the South American countries uh, ran a similar scheme where it was the, uh, it was largely women uh, breadwinners in families uh, who had a job guarantee. And that, again, had, uh, has had a big impact on the um, standard of living of those families. But uh, it's not been adopted as a national policy anywhere, and that's largely because of the political opposition to full employment. Okay. The lady at the front here, do you want the microphone? Uh, yeah. Um, talking about this debt recovery, this all happened over Christmas, and a lot of people, when they received these letters, um, were suicidal. Yes. And um, one bloke did suicide. And well, I'm sure some did. I'm sure I don't know how many, but uh, they were told to ring Lifeline. So in their letter, they were saying, "We want your money." And if you're upset by this, ring Lifeline, which I think is absolutely ridiculous. People do have a right of review and appeal with Centrelink. Um, and I, I've recommended to people, I know people don't like the online stuff, but you, if you've got the new phones, there's an app. With that app, you can actually take photos of documents and send them to Centrelink. And the advantage, so if you write your letter saying, I want a review, this is why, the advantage of doing that is it leaves a receipt in your phone. You've got proof it doesn't go missing in the mail or stuck on someone's desk or whatever. You've got a record that, yes, they did get that request for a review and appeal. Several of our documents got lost in the computer. Yeah. Mm. Um, very clever. Okay, Paddy? Yeah, uh, thanks, John and Victor. Uh, you're, you're a good example, both of you, of why uh, we need uh, we need to have a good publicly funded university sector. So thanks for your talk. But look, my, my question um, relates to the historical context you both gave for both your ideas. And in, in that historical context, I thought you were almost as critical of the Labor side of politics as you were of the Conservative side. Now, I'm wondering if that reflects uh, a collapse in the ideological differences between Labor and Conservative in this country, and that as a result of that collapse of ideological difference, political debate in this country has been reduced to debate about how we manage different policies rather than having actually having different policies and that that approach to politics also means that we no longer have an holistic approach, an overall approach to what's good for the country. Uh, Victor, you, you mentioned in yours, and I'll finish on this, but you mentioned in yours after post-World War II, post-World War II, for instance, that full employment was related to the 
public housing industry and the size of the public housing industry. These days we don't do that, we just take one policy at a time and the neoliberals on both sides of politics bugger us up each time. But I'd like your comments on it. Uh, well, <coughs> the, um, the actual abandonment of full employment happened in the uh, last year of the uh, Whitlam government when Bill Hayden became the treasurer. Um, there were uh, Cairns and um, uh, other elements within the party were staunchly opposed to not taking immediate action to bring down the unemployment. So the unemployment was, the abandonment of full employment happened by bureaucrats in the Treasury. They tried to do it with William McMahon. They were going to throw him to the wolves, but he'd been a Treasurer and he still had contacts in the Treasury and they tipped him off that they were behind the scenes causing an economic contraction in 1971. And uh, McMahon spent like blazes during 72 to try and stop the unemployment rising just before the December 72 election. Uh, and that's why that, that funding sort of flushed through the economy. And so you see inflation taking off from December 1972. So the Whitlam government walked into this massive inflation. But then the bureaucrats then pulled the pin on full employment during, the, during 1974 and induced a recession that Whitlam and his government weren't even told about it. By the time they found out about it, then the question in late 74, they were anticipating there was going to be a rise of unemployment to 5% by the middle of the next year. So Cairns was the treasurer in the first half of 75, and he was arguing for uh, red schemes and all sorts of job creation to try and get the unemployment down. And Whitlam kicked him out of the treasurer's position, installed Hayden, and Hayden said, we've got an inflation problem, we'll use unemployment as the device to undermine the bargaining position of the trade unions so that they will cop real wage cuts rather than perpetuate the wage price spiral. So what happened after that was, with the ratcheting up of the cost of elections, the Whitlam government was forced to fight four federal elections in five years. So that's 72, 74, 75 and 77. And by the time they got to that point, they were broke. And at each election, Foreign sources had been pumping the Liberals full of money at each election, so the cost of an election just went up and up and up. And so, basically, um, when Hayden took over control of the Labor Party, he saw that the challenge was to be able to compete for corporate donations as well as the Liberal Party. And so, key policies had to be dumped, and the first of them to go was full employment. They weren't going to restore full employment when they got back into office. Um, but that's the ideological, that's when it happened. And from that point on, the Labor Party has been different to the Liberal Party in a lot of areas and has done lots of things that were beneficial, but has also in, ingrained a lot of harmful strategies and policies that working people, for instance, the deliberate casualisation of the labour market in the yes. 1990s, for instance. But anyway, John, I have a view on that. Yeah, the, uh, I mean, essentially the neoliberal agenda has been what governments of all persuasions um, since Hayden's uh, 75 budget. Um, and the, uh, but even in the days of um, Whitlam, uh, the Whitlam government, uh, there was a concentration on small areas of policy. It's the only way government can operate. 
you know, and you have to do that. The, the difference between men and women of Australia times and the current time is that we don't think of the big picture. The big picture is never addressed because the truth can't be told. Thank you. Neil, did Neil? Yeah. yeah um, just a question about the way that you define what a wage is under either scheme, or an income or a wage. In a time in the 20th century, we saw average hours of work drop from 48 hours a week. That's pretty much the set standard um, in the first part of the century. To now, when it's 38 hours a week, supposedly, for you know, someone on a full-time wage, um, the 48-hour went more or less stayed there till after the Second World War, with some exception, and then dropped two hours in the early 1970s, and I suspect hasn't budged since then. At the same time, productivity in the world has just expanded exponentially, as we know, as we've talked about here, automation, etc., etc. So determining what sort of wage level you're going to have under a job guarantee or a basic income scheme is pretty fundamental because really you should be able to work, as Kane suggested, 15 hours a week. Or well, Andre Gore says a thousand hours a year. Um, so determining that income can't really be based on the actual work you're doing, but it's really based on the value of yourself and the work <coughs> and what that contributes to society. And it's a fundamental issue for both things. Because a basic income, in a sense, can actually provide a way for employers to actually reduce the amount they pay because someone's getting money from somewhere else, so we can offer less money. Those sort of issues are things that have to be worked out between these two positions. Klaus of 2008 said that in the extreme situation, basic income is a permanent strike fund. Um, the thing is that it empowers workers to say we don't want to have a bar of that job, it's unsafe, it's dirty, it's unpleasant, it's not paid well enough. I, I believe that unions will have more power and that ordinary workers will have more power once there is a guaranteed minimum income in place. I, uh, what you're saying is what you're saying is true, and um, the job guarantee model merely stipulates that the job guaranteed wage and working conditions would be the federal minimum award wage in our situation. So, if the labour market moved on and the uh, average working week was reduced to say 20 hours a week and you still got paid a, a livable minimum wage for that, that would be the job guarantee wage. And in terms of empowerment of workers to bring that about, if you were going to take industrial action, uh, you'd want to know that you're not going to, you'll fall from grace if the, your present employment is compromised, is not going to be any further than the federal minimum award wage if it was a job guarantee. Uh, that a sustainable strike fund that's paying you the the age pension will be fine for a period, but after a while, I don't see that that would be enough to sustain a long-standing industrial action. You don't remember Mount Isa Mines, Conrad. <laughs> and, and just to add to that, um, at the moment, you don't you don't get paid if you go on strike. So that's often yeah. forgotten. People who aren't in unions don't know much about it. If you're on strike, you don't get paid for that time that you're not working. But the other thing is you're also not entitled to a social security payment during that time, which basic income 
or job guarantee would fix that. So. But you just walk out of the job. Could I add something to that? As retiree unions, we've got a lot of them going at present. They could go do the work for them. You know, if they want a picket or something, I reckon they'd get them there, the older people. If they join, there's the retirees in their okay. all divisions. And you've got your card here, haven't you? Yeah. Oh, in the little yellow pamphlet. Peter's got it. Peter's got it for you. Okay. Any other questions? Um, yep. John, you uh, offered us an understanding of the basic in the basic minimum income as that which covers the necessities. So that to cover our clothes and our food and our shelter, for example. Uh, why not um, conceptualise basic as that amount which the state pays us, which slave to productivity increases, increases in real terms over time, so that eventually we can get to a position where we can pay for our, our clothes and our shelter and our food and wax for our surfboard. <laughs> the advantage of establishing a basic uh, minimum income scheme or basic uh, uh, income universally is that it will be built on. Uh, and at the moment, capital is winning in the division of the productivity. Workers' productivity is going straight into the boss's pocket. Yeah. Um, with a basic income in place, they might lose a lot, lot more than they will under any fair system. Um, they'll, they'll be begging workers to come and work for them. I see the major difference between the two schemes is that whether one can stay in bed all day or is obliged to go somewhere and do something. <laughs> and uh, I really wonder if it would be right to just give money to somebody who can surf all day and nothing. There's the stereotype for you. Um. I, I have worked with uh, unemployed people for many years and I was a specialist employment counsellor in the CS in the 80s and about a quarter of my clients were people on the invalid pension and disability support pension which was a guaranteed income, they weren't under any compulsion to look for work. No, but what I'm saying is that these people were some of the most desperately demanding clients I had in terms of wanting me to help them get work. Hmm. So. So the issue for me is that um, it's not necessarily a matter of consequence of, of whether we have work tests or things that compel people to, to look for work. Uh, I think what's important is you just have it so that whenever they feel like doing some work, there's a job that pays, has decent conditions and a decent basic pay rate for them to just walk straight into. And from that point on, people have got real access into the rest of the labour market. But my concern is with um, a system that uh, if you only had the universal basic income and you didn't have that access, at the moment, at the moment there's 755,000 officially unemployed people. There's another 1 million people who tell the Bureau of Statistics, 1 million 18,000 people, who tell the Bureau of Statistics they want work and that they don't have work. 
of, of the 12 million employed people in this country, this is just the statistics that came out the other day, of the 12 million employed people in this country, 1,114,000 of those people need more hours of work. So there is actually a, a real need to actually meet that need of all those millions of hours of work that we need in the economy. And if we just gave, if we just satisfied um, in a conservative estimate, if we provided uh, um, 1.5 million people with, say, another 20 hours of work a week, that's, what is it, three, 30 million hours of work per week that we could be enriching the whole society with. Yeah, so, so I, and I, I personally, I know there are job guarantee advocates that say, you know, you should have a, a work-tested benefit or no benefit to fall back on and people should be compelled to work. I don't see the need for that. I, I think there'll be, a, that if you had both systems in place, I think a whole lot of people who currently are living on pensions and benefits and not nothing would flock to have, I mean, a, a pull 687 bucks a week or whatever the minimum wage is. That's what I believe, personally. Yeah, but given the problem to find work activities for those people that <coughs> received it. We did, we did a survey about six years ago where five of us spent um, seven months on the phone talking to local community development people in every local government district around the country, just saying, if, if money wasn't a problem, what, what work would you, what jobs would you get done around your district that would improve the quality of life of your people? And we came up with hundreds of thousands of jobs. There's no missing need there. It's simply a matter of just providing the resources to mobilise that unutilised pool of labour that we already have. There's 39 million people waiting for Centrelink to answer the phone. Good. No one to answer When I was younger, when I was younger, I used to be a sir, go to the sir. Well, five of my mates, they went and lived at Byron Bay and lived on the Dole. You know, could that happen again? Comrade, the... Uh... No, I'm not criticise what you're saying. I can't believe in what you're saying. But... Uh, Christian Porter, not my favourite friend, uh, declared that in the last year, 3,000 people had refused to engage out of the 700-odd thousand. 3,000 people. And they would have been breached. They would have been breached. So think of the money he saved. You know, it's money for jam. These bastards wouldn't know morality if they tripped over it. <laughs> I'm up to question about, I've lived in you know, lots of, I've lived in both cities and country areas, I've lived in areas where there's been high unemployment and low unemployment, uh, where it's really expensive to live, where it's not so expensive to live, I would just wonder if you have some thoughts about a universal basic income and what it would mean for different parts of Australia. You don't get more disadvantaged Australians than the Aboriginal people living in the Northern Territory. I, I, I spent 15 years operating out of Darwin. Uh, the, uh, the, at the moment, they have 50% of their Social Security put onto a basics card uh, that can only be spent at approved stores. The... Uh, uh, it's costing 
in excess uh, well, it's costing somewhere between three and $8,000 a year to fund the basics card. If they gave Aborigines on those 37 remote communities an extra, say, $5,000 a year, they wouldn't have to worry about a bloody basics card. They'd have enough money to employ people to do the things that they need done in their communities and, the, and would create all sorts of jobs. Um, the, there's houses that need to be built. I mean, on Palm Island, for instance, it's not in Northern Territory, but there are houses with 29 people in them. And they wonder why those houses get damaged. Um, throughout the Territory, uh, there's overcrowded housing. And the, you know, there are lots of things that we could do if we decided to properly pay for the social infrastructure that we need. And I'd just like to make a comment about Byron Bay. People went to Byron Bay. Didn't Byron Bay boom after that? Isn't that one of the few regional areas? That's right, because there was money going into the area. They had the marijuana selling it. Well, now if you move... are still doing it. But nowadays, if you move to an area with low unemployment, you get your payment back for six months. That was my question about, you know, my family's from Lisbon. That's reachable. And, you know, low-income families and all that sort of stuff. I've lived in Burke. I've lived in Renmark. I've walked in all these different places. And I, I can see that a universal basic income would help in some places. But where I live now in Surrey Hills in Sydney, it's not, it's, it's not going to help the people who live across the road from the Housing Commission. Yeah. I've got a question. Um, you mentioned we had 12 million people working. 12 million. Okay. Employed, yeah. We have 12 million. Um, I've done a rough estimation. I'm a direct employee. Now, there's probably about two thirds of of that 12 million that are direct. The rest are sort of like labour hire. I work at the casino in, in Sydney. We're slowly now seeing a creeping up of uh, uh, labour hire people. How long before I start worrying about my direct employee status? Well, and other people within our society? To, to be to be counted as uh, employed by the Bureau of Statistics, you only had to have worked for one hour during the week of the survey. And that's why there's over a million employed people who say they desperately need more hours of work. So the, the labour hire people that might be just picking up scraps of work here and there, they're counted as employed. And in fact, if they take a, a full-time permanent job of, say, 38 hours a week and split it into two 15-hour-a-week jobs, they've just doubled the number of employed people. Even though you know one person was contributing 30, there was 38 hours of employment being generated. They've actually reduced the amount of paid employment in the economy by eight hours, but it actually it counts as an increase in the number of people on, uh, number of people employed. I'm in a position where I haven't seen overtime in 10 years, and yet these casualised people coming into our department are growing overtime. This and I haven't seen overtime in 10 years. Well, well, the, the, the whole issue about me saying that there's more security in a job guarantee, if 
And it's an absolute fallback option. Everyone can just walk into a job yeah. that's a full-time job that pays the full wages and it's a safe employer and it's, it complies with scrupulously with the, you know, the correct standards of employment that takes your tax out of your pay and pays your super and all that. So if that's, if that's always sitting there as a fallback option, it means that all those other bottom-end jobs that currently are just in this sort of shabby state in all, for all sorts of reasons they would all have to at least meet that minimum standard that they're already supposed to be meeting. And you do it using that market mechanism of giving workers an alternative, an alternative to walk out the door and get the other job. Except for the 427 visa, or whatever visa it is that uh, allows foreigners. 457? Yeah. So, I mean, employer fill, fill those gaps with, with this type of work. Well, yeah, that's... Can I have another question? Before you do, anyone else? I'd just like to... Uh, Miles, yeah. I remember the days when I left school, you went into a full-time job. I went into retail, and um, that was my first job. I walked in the door, and everyone had a full-time job. At the same time, at the same time, people in retail could buy a home. Where in retail today can people buy a home? I finished my working career in retail. We had 38 full-time employees. When I left there, there was three. So all those jobs were shedded for casualisation. One thing that sticks in my mind is this is every time I see the unemployment figures come out, it comes out 5 or 6%. But it's, as you said, it's if you work two hours a fortnight, so if you don't work this week and you do two hours next week, you're considered employed. Yes. Who can live on two hours a fortnight? We've got to get that, going back to what you were saying, we've got to get that communication out to people. The average Joe Blow who knows that these are the things that are helping. People think, oh, there's jobs out there. There's only 6% unemployed. Who cares? I've got a job. It's wrong. And, and, and as a union delegate, I fought extremely, extremely hard to get people more hours. And I had to go to the boss and say, listen, I've got this work over here. I worked out the back dock, mind you. I've got this work out here. I, you need to put labour in there. And I had to convince him to put labour into those jobs. And this is the type of thing which has gone on now. It's all about a CEO making massive money at the, at the extent of taking money off the people off the floor. He gets himself massive bonuses, massive shares. He walks out after three years. He couldn't give a continental about any other employee in the place. He just couldn't care. We have a big problem. It's an education problem. We need to start educating the average Joe Blow on the street. And we need to tell the person getting this money, he's getting too much. Is there and no one could work that bloody hard. Is there a question mark on the end of that? <laughs> How do we do it? <laughs> in, in responding to that, could John and Victor also comment on the issue of 457 visas and other visas like that? 457 
is a rather rather quaint thing. Um, the uh, I can remember when I started work doing we had things like uh, the postmaster general's department that, uh, <laughs> and, 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 and the railways and um, the uh, we trained apprentices. When I went to university after uh, 72 I never paid any fees. Uh, I had a free education. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. At the moment it's a, it's a bloody shambles. The day I started at a university uh, or the, the week before I started at the university they said well can you start on the, on the Monday, I said, no. I said, I'm giving a paper in Perth on Monday and my previous employers already agreed to fund it. And Oh, no, no, look, uh, we want to uh, get the paper credited to us. So we'll pay. They paid first-class bloody airfares down to Perth. They put me up at a slap-up hotel. Uh, I mean, these days, if you want to get from uh, a university to a conference, you've got to either be sleeping with the professor or know something and know somebody that the professor's sleeping with and be prepared to blackmail him. <laughs> we don't need foreign workers here. We should be training our own. Thank you. Well, the, the, issue, the issue is weird if you've got so much labour underutilisation in the country where, where the necessity is to be bringing in people on these visa arrangements. And, uh, and it's because it's, it's, it's not about meeting skill shortages. Uh, because it happens in so many different places where we've got abundance of people with the skills to do those jobs. But I think we all appreciate that that these people are more easily exploited, they're more vulnerable when they're here. We should be giving them a lot of solidarity and support, um, but uh, it's, it's not because of some need that we need to be importing these skills that these people are here. It's because there's advantage in employing people who are vulnerable yeah. um, yes. because uh, they, 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 won't, they won't balk at doing work that other workers might say, contravenes the sort of standards that they expect in a country like this. And it makes every other Australian worker vulnerable. Yes. <coughs> in fact, there was an article in the Herald, I think it was today, about a woman who was um, on a 457 visa. The employer got her to pay, her family to pay $30,000 for the visa, said you're out of the country if you don't cough up. And um, she did unpaid work for nearly two years as well. So keep an eye out for that. Sarah, we've got to finish up soon, so Sarah's uh, the last one. Yeah, I don't need a mic, I don't think. Okay. Um, this is a question for Victor. Um, other than the job guarantee, is well, is its purpose, and can you see any other way, to wind back in any shape or form the increasingly precarious nature of work today, the casualisation and the part-timeness yeah. and the labour hire stuff? Yeah. Is that one of the things, yes. the job guarantee... Yes. Is there another way? I don't know if there's another way, but the, the decasualisation of the labour market, we had a very casualised labour, labour market during the Depression. Yes. 
and the labour market decasualised when the government instituted 2% unemployment. That's how we came to have everyone having permanent full-time jobs. And if you wanted a part-time job, you could have a permanent part-time job. And it was only when the, they pulled the pin on the full employment in the mid-70s that the, the opportunities to casualise the labour market appeared. But there was a law. There was a law that said in the award structure that said the only way you could employ someone on a casual basis was for three months. And from that point on, they had to be made a permanent employee. And that law was removed again by the Hawke government in 1988 or 89, just prior to cranking up the interest rates and inducing the recession we had to have that put a million people out of work. And in, this, in the clawing of people to get any sort of scraps of employment, employers started offering casual work as a permanent form and people took those jobs. And we, in the space of three and a half years or four years, we went from being the least casualised labour market in the OECD to the most casualised labour market in the OECD. And that was a combination of removing that ban on casualisation, on casual work, the three-month rule, cranking up the interest rates and putting a million people out of work, and instigating the activity test on Newstart and the brutalising of the unemployed. It all happened as simultaneously. And it drove the casualisation of the labour market. And it's what Paul Keating boasts proudly as being the thing that gave us our competitive edge. When he, when he talked about the recession we had to have, uh, it, when he became the Prime Minister at that, that exact press conference, he was asked, do you regret saying that? And he said, uh, yes, I did. I was just uh, misspoking. Uh, no, no one could ever deliberately cause unemployment as a way of achieving some other policy end that would be absolutely reprehensible. But um, some six months later, in... Um, uh, forgot his health minister's name. Blue So Blue Yeah, in his diaries. He tells the story of flying back to Canberra with um, uh, uh, Paul Keating and his wife and he, and, and something was mentioned about the recession we had to have line. And he flew into this animated spiel saying that it actually was the recession we had to have. And what he said was the countries that have got big unemployment at the start of the 90s are going to be at the front of the pack at the end of the 90s. So it was just engineering, social engineering. And I dealt face to face with the wreckage of that engineering. Day after day, people breaking down and crying at my desk. People who said, I've never been in a place like this. People had their own businesses who had nothing but contempt for unemployed people before. And here they were sitting in a CES office, for God's sake, applying for the doll. And so, you know, the, the human wreckage out of this was just appalling. Um, but, yeah, so the way to decasualise uh, the, the, uh, de the labour market is to bring the unemployment rate down just as it worked after the Second World War. And that's the way to do it. Hey, Deb, can I say something from behind the camera? Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm not standing there today. Um, with all due respect to the history lesson um, and um, with respect for what you both have had to offer today, it is difficult for someone who is working class labour and, you know, lived in poverty, lived in um, public housing and have found themselves in the parliament today, surprisingly, every time I walk in I'm surprised, 
um, to hear the running down of good people like Whitlam and Keating and, 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 and yes, those history lessons are very important for people to understand, but we don't have anyone near as bad as the buggers that we've had recently yeah. in the federal level. And I think some of the ideas that we've discussed today, some of the ideology needs to actually be taken to town hall meetings and talked to the average person, as you say. Yes. Um, we need to actually stop the stigma of people who at different times in their lives, for whatever reason, for the bulk of my life I was one of those people who've had to ask for assistance from our government and been humiliated for it, made to feel like a second class citizen. So I think we need to find a way where we take a step from this space into the next space, a big town hall meeting, and talk to the people who, who believe, who really do believe that it is a handout to bludgers who are just going to go surfing. Exactly. You know, that's what I think we have to do today is take that away and challenge that view out there. And it's not about who's bad, who's worse, Labor or Liberal, but about changing the mindset of people on the ground. Sorry, I've stood here behind yeah. you. Yeah. thought on this one. I'd like to think we can pick better models than Keating and Hawke and those people. Yeah. There are better people, there have been better people than that, yes. and we would wish for much better than they were ultimately in the things they did. Yes. Yes. Neither of them, neither party at the moment is calling for an end to unemployment either. Neither is actually coming up with a plan. There is no plan at the moment <coughs> to address 1.1 million underemployed and 750,000 unemployed. There's no plan. Okay. Okay. So, so, we do really have to be we vigilant have to finish because on that note, we've yeah. got disability workers and the CEO of Northcott coming on and saying that the disability workers should be, we should have used 457 visas for them. And, and that's simply because the work itself is being devalued. And if we see this now, and if we hear that, we should be talking to everybody about the fact that this industry has been completely privatised and it's about to go down that same track. Mm. And it's about to be casualised completely. It's about to be uh, ruined as a workforce. And those are people that are not only vulnerable themselves, but dealing with people who have the greatest vulnerability in our society. So we've got to start talking about it as soon as we hear that on the radio now and as soon as we hear it on the TV. And, and also to our friends and colleagues as well. Yeah. Alright, we'll just finish on a solemn, more solemn note about our next politics in the pub. So just yesterday, three people were killed at work in two separate incidents. One was in Coolum in Queensland and two were in Picton in New South Wales. So we extend our condolences to their family, friends and workmates. And there's probably a lot more died that we, we won't read about because they've died of long-term disease from occupational disease, things like asbestos, asbestosis. <coughs> on your seat, you'll find information about our next politics in the pub, and that will be on Saturday the 29th of April, and that is to honour the International Day of Mourning for workers who've died of occupational accident and disease. The speakers are Rita Malia of the CFMEU, Emma Maiden of New South, Unions, New South Wales, and the MC will be Rowan Kernerbone of the Injured Workers Support Network. And we've also put out Rowan's card, so if you know anyone who is an injured worker, needs um, 
support, uh, injured workers is the support group of people who've been injured, but they also offer help with things like dealing with compo uh, companies and, and that sort of thing. So we hope we see you there on the 29th of April. And I want to finish by just thanking the great BMUC team who've put this together today. And if we... And if... Oh yes, membership application forms if anyone wants to join us. It's um, $20 if you're a waged person and $5 a year if you're unwaged. So thanks for coming. Um, it will help the staff of the hotel if you move out quickly, but you're welcome to join us in the bar and keep the, keep the discussion going. Thank you. Thank you.